Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Nourish your mind with a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Visit irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. It's Friday, October the 4th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In the studio with me, our political editor, Pat Leahy. Good morning, Pat. Good afternoon, Hugh. Um, Every Friday at the moment, as you know, we're dedicating this podcast to getting Brexit done in our own particular way, or at least keeping up to date on what's been happening in Brexit this week. How's it been for you this week? Another riveting week in Brexit, Hugh. The big news, of course, was the uh, proposals made by Boris Johnson, uh, set up to be his final offer to the EU to achieve a, a breakthrough later amended to the fact that uh, amended to being his first offer to the EU to make a breakthrough in the Brexit deadlock people will be familiar with the I think would be familiar with the details of it so the question is I suppose in the latter part of the week how has it landed uh, in Brussels also in Dublin the also in Westminster it should be said uh, indeed, yeah, yeah, and 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 to dwell on that briefly momentarily, uh, I suppose it's been accepted by the DUP, and the indications from the Spartans in the ERG is that this is something that could perhaps be passed through the House of Commons in Westminster. So, fantastic! There's the big obstacle over, isn't it? Not really, because the reception it has received in Brussels and in Dublin has been less warm. Now, I think people in Brussels and, and, and in Dublin have been very careful not to dismiss the proposals out of hand. And there was some very careful wording, I think, by the Taoiseach and, uh, and by Simon Coveney in reacting to it. So what they said was that this wasn't the basis for a deal, but it could be the basis for discussions. I think uh, that's more or less the, that, that's more or less reaction in Brussels too. And I think you find that the reaction was pretty choreographed uh, between, uh, between the two capitals I think people don't want to dismiss this out of hand because they, that's part of the blame game. But it's also that they want to keep negotiations open uh, with the UK. But as Tisha Kintonishta outlined, there's a number of very fundamental problems with this. And even just this morning, Tonishta Simon Coveney was uh, on Sean O'Rourke on RTE and he said that unless there is another big move by the British, then these proposals will uh, will not fly. So... In a sense, depending on what happens in Brussels today, in a sense, I think, you know, this is not really going anywhere in a hurry, whatever about going somewhere a bit more slowly than that. 
And we'll be talking a little later to our European editor, Patrick Smith, about the view from Brussels. But first of all, we are joined by Sam McBride, who's the political editor of the Belfast Newsletter, to discuss the changing position of the DUP this week and what it actually means. Sam, you're very welcome to the podcast. Hello, Hugh. Um, what exactly is going on here? You, I've been reading your writing about this and about the DUP's um, not quite subtle shift of position, really substantial shift of position um, this week. Uh, how significant should we regard that as being? It's a massive shift by the DUP. I think the danger for some people who say that this is not a sufficient shift, that this is not a workable proposal, is that they don't quite grasp how significant this change is for the DUP and how difficult it would be for them to go any further than this. Um, I think the, the essential difficulty here is that what has happened is that there's been very little preparation by the DUP of their supporters or even of some of their own members for the scale of what they have done. So we, we have had basically two years of Arlene Foster, Nigel Dodds, um, Sammy Wilson, all of the top brass of the DUP coming out and saying unambiguously that they cannot accept for constitutional reasons a regulatory or a customs border in the Irish Sea. And that, that has been, as Arlene Foster says, her one red line. And while at various points they have... Um, muddied the waters, if you like, um, by by introducing this idea that that there will be some role for Stormont in these arrangements, there will be a Stormont lock, a Stormont veto. There have been many, many occasions where they have just stated unambiguously and categorically, we will never accept a border in the Irish Sea. Now they have got to a situation where, um, yes, there will not, if these proposals survive as they are, be a customs border in the Irish Sea, um, but there would certainly be a significant divergence between Northern Ireland regulations, perhaps 30%, perhaps 60%, depending on where things go. And of course, if this is the the starting point for the the talks now, um, it'll probably be much more than that. So they, they have shifted very significantly on what they said was a principle. And once they've shifted on the principle, then you're really into a haggling process as to what percentage of these um, regulations can be transposed. So I think it's a massive shift for the DUP and it's very difficult for them because they, they have presented this up until now as a constitutional problem. They said this goes to the heart of what their party stands for in terms of its unionism. It's very difficult to go from that situation to now trying to effectively say, well, these are just a few trade rules and it's all it's all about being pragmatic and this, this makes sense. That is just not what they were saying up until a couple of weeks ago. So do you anticipate in light of that any uh, resistance or blowback or trouble for Arlene Foster and the DUP leadership in the in the weeks ahead? I think there will definitely be difficulties for her. It, it, it may well be that those difficulties are lessened if this is very quickly abandoned or rejected by the EU. I, I mean, it, that, 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 that could certainly, I think, shift things quite quickly. But even if this goes nowhere, even if the EU says this, this, this is a nonsense and that, that, that basically seems to be what is coming back um, from Brussels, albeit there, there is an acceptance that they can at least talk about this um, which which means that it's not being um, completely rejected out of hand. But e- even even if this goes nowhere, um, even if this doesn't get through the Commons or it doesn't get through the other side of the talks process, there is a massive change here by the DUP, which they will not be able to recant upon. They have accepted the principle that Northern Ireland will be treated differently to the rest of the UK. Up until now, they have been saying, with very few exceptions, such as the all-island electricity market, they have been saying that Northern Ireland leaves on the same terms as the rest of the UK very, very clear from what is in this letter from the Prime Minister that that is not the case. And the other element of this, which I think is is just nonsensical to the person in the street um, when they're trying to explain this, is that 
the, the Prime Minister is saying openly in his letter repeatedly, this is a compromise offer. We, we have moved ground. Now it's over to you, Dublin. Now it's over to you, Brussels. You need to compromise. At the same time, Arlene Foster, while endorsing that, that, that letter and that language and that approach, she is saying, I haven't moved an inch. I, I am just saying what I always said. I mean, both of those things cannot be, be, be both correct at the same time. And I think that um, the difficulty here is that Arlene Foster is coming into this process as a weakened leader. She is not a, a big beast of unionism. She is not a Peter Robinson or an Ian Paisley. She's someone who many DUP supporters um, would not be dying in a ditch to support, to use the phrase that the Prime Minister unfortunately used about some of the, the elements of uh, this uh, Brexit process. And so therefore, I think she is somebody who, if she bangs a table um, in DUP headquarters, in a few weeks' time where this is very unpopular um, with DUP supporters and she says, back me or sack me over this, I don't think she's going to get much backing. Pat, how do you read this? Well, well before, I, before I answer uh, that, Hugh, if I could just ask Ham one more question. Is why, why do you think the DUP has made this move now? It's a very good question. Um, there are suggestions that when they met the Prime Minister a few weeks ago in Downing Street, um, Arlene Foster, Nigel Dodds and their key backroom figure, Timothy Johnston, went into Downing Street, I think it was but an hour-long meeting. Um, there were mixed messages which came out of that. Some people in the DUP um, were saying that, that they were being told by those people that it was a very good, pe- that it was a very good meeting and that they, they, they genuinely felt it was a good meeting. Then other people were saying, no, 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 they had the Riot Act read to them. They were told that, that really there, there is going to be something imposed here over your head if you don't move. Um, and I think that Dominic Cummings is somebody who is obviously very significant into this whole process and he's not somebody who is viewed I think by unionists as somebody who instinctively is one of them he's not even really a conservative he's somebody who is really um, pragmatic willing to get Brexit done whatever it takes and if the DUP stand in the way of that I don't think very many people in Northern Ireland unionism would think that um, he is somebody who, who, who would balk at that um, as, a, as a line which, which couldn't be crossed and of course with the change in the parliamentary arithmetic while the DUP still are supporting Boris Johnston, they no longer are the kingmakers. They no longer have it within their gift to um, to keep him in power because he has lost so many of his own MPs. So lots of things have shifted. It's not entirely clear why they have done this, but I think that they they, they are they are staring down the barrel both of that shifting um, uh, maths in the House of Commons, the um, the changes in Downing Street, and also the fact that people in Northern Ireland, such as farmers, um, are putting pressure on them over the issue of No Deal. I think as we as we get closer to that and people um, really look it in the eye, I think there is an element of them being um, maybe not completely um, unwilling to embrace that, but concerned as to what that might mean for them. And Sam, may I also ask you, to to what extent, I think we're going to be discussing a little bit later in the podcast, how many of the parties to this negotiation in Brussels, in Dublin, in London, perhaps in Belfast as well, are not necessarily um, working full throttle towards a deal which they expect to take place in the next two or three weeks. But for a landscape post-October the 31st, which would include a United Kingdom election and perhaps a different government, perhaps a strengthened Boris Johnson, whatever it may turn out to be, and that that's what the long game is here, that the positioning is that's going on. Is that the case with this move by the DUP as well? I think, I think there's probably an element of that. I mean, everyone is expecting an election, both in Northern Ireland and across the rest of the UK. So, I mean, that is, that is being built into all of these calculations. I think if you're in the DUP, you're probably calculating 
what if there is a November or early December or January election is going to hurt us most? Is it going to be the um, the business community, the farmers, the people who are very opposed to No Deal, who are terrified of it, who think, who think it's going to cost jobs and um, have a very significant economic impact? Or is it the constitutional element of this? Is it the, the old certainty of Northern Ireland politics that whatever about the economy, whatever about money, people will vote based on orange and green, based on flags? And I think that is where um, the DUP, by moving a little bit here, um, could be seen to be um, coming round to the idea that actually there, there may be some electoral consequences from that economic concern about a, about a hard Brexit, about a New Deal Brexit. But also it could equally be the case that, that it is still a constitutional concern. They are at the heart of British politics. They have boasted about their influence. They are propping up this prime minister. If he then turns around and um, stampedes over them and um, um, he, he moves to impose something which is constitutionally very difficult for them to sell, they are going to get harmed by that. So I'm not entirely clear as to which of those it is, but I think that certainly that electoral impact is going to be uppermost in their minds. There is no party... Um, in my experience in Northern Ireland politics, which thinks about everything it does through the prism of the ballot box, everything the DUP does is about how this plays uh, in the terms of votes. And so they will ruthlessly change strategy if they think that's going to work. But it's not clear whether they're doing that out of fear of what Boris Johnson might do or out of fear of what their supporters might think of a New Deal Brexit. And in regard to all that, how much importance should we assign to the other new element, I suppose you could say, of this of this proposal, which is the role which Stormont would play on a sort of a rolling um, calendar basis, these sort of a sort of four year rolling process kicking in where the Assembly uh, should should it be should it be sitting, which clearly it isn't at the moment, would have a role in saying whether this these arrangements should continue for for a further four years. Is that likely to be presented as some kind of a uh, you know, a constitutional lock or, or indeed a veto uh, by the DUP when they when they do go back to their own electorate. Well, that's that's already how they're trying to present it, um, and I think that um, for, from from the DUP's perspective, by getting a role for Stormont, that is certainly a a significant advance on where they were. So rather than this being imposed on the, on them from outside, and particularly if it looks like it's being imposed at the behest of Dublin, um, they they will be able to say we we have our future in our own hands. That has two impacts. Not only does it give them the power to potentially veto this, but it also gives them a very significant electoral impact because they can go to their supporters and say, you have to vote for us or else this is going to happen. And we know that the DUP have history here. They got the rules changed around um, the uh, the uh, election of the Deputy First Minister and the First Minister, whereby the largest party would automatically get the top job within Stormont. That is something which they used to great electoral effect to be able to go to their supporters and say, you've got to vote DUP. If you don't vote DUP, you're getting Martin McGuinness as your First Minister. Um, and so I think there, there will be an electoral um, calculation there as well. But there is massive uncertainty about what this means. So um, as you say, Stormont doesn't sit at all at the moment. So what if Stormont is not restored? Um, what actually happens then? And either either that would mean, I presume, that um, Northern Ireland would continue with um, uh, the regulatory alignment with the rest of the UK, or it would continue with regulatory alignment with the rest, with the rest of the EU and with the South. Either of those two scenarios will incentivize either the DUP or Sinn Féin simply not to bring Stormont back. So why would you go back into Stormont if you can get what you want by keeping it down? And it doesn't really matter which of those it is. One side is going to be incentivized to do, to do that. And the second element of this is, what if Stormont does come back and you do persuade people to go back around the executive table, but they, they, they refuse to give consent to this? That, that doesn't seem to have been addressed in this. So the logic of what the DUP seems to be saying, where Arlene Foster is 
is implying that nothing has changed. They still oppose a, any sort of regulatory divergence um, be, um, between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. If that is the case, then she's basically saying this is all a ruse and um, we are going to get strong and back. We're going to veto it. So we haven't moved at all. So, I mean, it, there, there are so many elements of this proposal that just are nonsensical and have not been explained by the DUP um, that I think they're really going to struggle um, to you try to convince people that this is something that they know um, what they're talking about. Pat, what are your government sources telling you about this element of the proposal, the introducing Stormont and the, uh, and the Assembly into the process? Well, the Irish government has always been wary of um, a Stormont involvement in any special uh, arrangements for Northern Ireland. Even back when they, nego- they were negotiating with Theresa May's government, this was something that were deep. They, that Dublin was deeply uncomfortable with when it was uh, when it was mooted, and I think their objections are uh, surround precisely what Sam was talking about there: the ability of the DUP to veto, and even Simon Coveney was talking about this earlier this morning, that the ability of the the DUP, which is in a minority in the Assembly, to use the uh, to use the voting procedures in Stormont to block any. Um, Although uh, it's not clear. Any, and probably open for negotiations should it ever come to it, which particular voting procedures would apply to a decision of, of, of this sort, for example? No, you, know, you can imagine... You, 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 could, you could negotiate the hell out of this and you could end up in a situation where you weren't able to veto the continuation of it. And also the question of, you know, there are certain constitutional elements which are purely decided by, you know, by, by a majority of the people, like the original Belfast Agreement was. Uh, so it, does, it isn't necessarily the case, is it? Although it may be inherent in the, in the, in the first proposal, the original proposal that there would be a veto for each side of the community. I don't think that Dublin is fundamentally opposed to some role for uh, for Stormont in any new arrangements. And we're a long way away, I think, sure. from the, you know, from putting any meat on the bones of this uh, of this proposal. As you say, that is something that is likely to be trashed out in future negotiations if that is the point that we uh, come to. But I think where Dublin would draw the line is allowing a mechanism that was capable of being manipulatable by the DUP. And you can imagine that uh, that unionists would have the same concern about a process that was manipulatable by uh, Sinn Féin to achieve their ends. So it's very difficult to see how you can square that circle. I don't think, though it is, and reflecting on what Sam was saying, I don't think that it is appreciated uh, sufficiently in Dublin the extent to which the DUP has signalled uh, a move on this. And what I wonder is that if the DUP is, in principle at least, willing to... Uh, to accept differences in regulation uh, between the rest of the UK and uh, and the North, would it be prepared ultimately to accept differences in the customs regime? Because the objection that Dublin has to the Johnson proposals as put forward this week is that it still requires border checks of some description because of the difference in customs regimes. And if the DUP is willing to uh, to compromise on regulation, would it be willing to compromise on customs? As yes, well? Sam. It reminds me of that old anecdote about George Bernard Shaw, who uh, offered to pay a huge sum of money for a sexual favour to a, a lady of his acquaintance, and when she said yes, he cut it by ninety five percent, and she was outraged, and he said, "Madam, we have uh, established the principle. We're now need, need to settle on the price." There's something possibly similar with the DUP breaking its red line here, isn't there? I, I think that's that's a prescient analogy here, um, albeit not one that the DUP would welcome. Um, I mean, 
I think I think it's very difficult to see how the DUP could compromise again on customs. I think that if they have if they have accepted the principle of regulatory alignment, I can see how um, if that was not to go down as badly with their supporters as it may go down, you could then argue as to the percentage of regulations. And once once that principle is accepted, it's much less significant, obviously, as to as to where exactly you draw that line. But I mean, even in what the DUP are saying at this point, having climbed down significantly is um, really boasting about how they would never accept a, a, a customs divergence. So, I mean, the, the difficulty here, I think, is that once something is presented in constitutional terms in Northern Ireland politics, it's very, very difficult for people to climb down because this is the the core, as we know, of what people vote based on. Um, it is not about um, people voting with their wallets. It is not about any sort of conventional political system where you can appeal to people and say, well, this is going to cost jobs or it's going to bring in money. And actually, the, the uh, suggestion or the hint in Boris Johnson's letter the other day that there would be a big financial package for Northern Ireland as part of this, I think that actually makes this worse for the DUP because it makes it look like they're being bought. It makes it look like they're selling out quite literally on a constitutional um, threat as they framed it. It's not something they can then turn around and say, well, it's not. This is how they described it. Whether you accept that's right or that's wrong, that's what they told people. Now they're willing to say, actually, we, we will go along with at least part of this and we'll get a lot of money for this. At one point that was suggested in, I think, some of the London papers. It was angrily denounced by the DUP. They wouldn't be taking money for this. I really think that confirms a lot of the stereotypes about the DUP, that they're interested in money, that they're willing to do a deal, and effectively, if you, if you, if you bid them up, they will come to the table. Sam, thanks very much for joining us today. Now we're joined by our Europe editor, Patrick Smith, who is in Brussels. And first of all, Paddy, I suppose it would be good to know what the hell is going on there. David Frost, um, the, negoci- the UK government negotiator, is over there. I've been hearing a lot of the last 24 hours about some kind of a tunnel which people enter if there are real negotiations happening. Is there any sign of that tunnel at all? No, I, and, and we asked a spokesman uh, uh, only a few minutes ago uh, whether we were approaching a tunnel. He said, we are not in a tunnel. The tunnel happens when you have uh, really substantive negotiations and you want to do it intensively for four or five days, maybe, and you don't want to tell anybody. You, you don't want to tell the member states. You don't want to tell the commission, anybody outside the negotiating teams. And uh, similarly, on, on the notionally on, on the British side, that that. That, that anything is happening or what's happening, and you and then end up with the possibility of of serious negotiations. And what would cause somebody to enter a tunnel then? Uh, as far as the Commission is concerned, conviction that the British proposals are substantially able to uh, meet the three guarantees which uh, they have said are a precondition for talks. Uh, in other words, safeguarding the Belfast Agreement. Uh, protecting the single market, and crucially, uh, protecting the all-Ireland economy, which is where we have problems uh, at the moment, particularly. So there's been a certain amount of emollient talk on both sides over the last couple of days, from the British side and from the European side, you know, being open to, uh, to discussing things, taking proposals seriously. How much of that is just um, play-acting, that at the, core, uh, at the core of the matter, these proposals are never going to be acceptable in Brussels? It's very important to Brussels, uh, the commission, that uh, Boris Johnson is not able to say uh, it's Brussels that closed the door on us. We were willing to uh, be uh, 
to negotiate, to be to be uh, open to accept changes in our proposals, but they just closed the door on us. So uh, Brussels is determined that that won't happen, which is why uh, young Jean-Claude Juncker's statement the other day started off with a welcoming the proposals, but then he went on and pretty much demolished them. Paddy, the sense I get uh, here from uh, talking to people in Dublin is is that there's clearly, as you've laid out, deficiencies from the EU side in the Johnson proposals and they don't necessarily like them and the prospects for any sort of an agreement this side of a summit are indeed in October are you know pretty remote or remote to the point of almost being negligible but that if there is an extension which seems to me is what most people accept followed by an election in the UK in which, after which Boris Johnson returns to Parliament with a majority, then they may end up dealing with these proposals as a basis for at least a negotiation. Do you get the sense of anything like that in Brussels? No, I think that there's a sense of pessimism at the prospect that an election will produce the result that you suggested and that they would be simply back uh, looking at, at unacceptable proposals. Uh, the, the problem is that the elements of these proposals actually are so fundamentally opposed to the principles that the backstop was supposed to enshrine that it doesn't. You don't see any way around them. I, I think the, the reality is that a return of Boris Johnson in a, a British general election would simply lead us to uh, a, a no deal uh, outcome in uh, in January or, or whenever it is the extension is granted to. Pat, can I ask you further on that then? Um... You have a piece in today's newspaper where you talk about the government sort of wait, adopting a wait-and-see um, prospect to an extent. And I heard the Spectator podcast quoting you, in fact, it all gets a bit, oh, bit uh, uh, internalised at some point, but quoting you almost approvingly, or at least reading your uh, a series of tweets you issued yesterday, as being that should there be a Boris Johnson Conservative majority following an election, the government might well, as they interpreted your words, have to actually move to some extent on the current uh, European red lines, which Paddy just described. Yeah, I think looking down the line, I think that's what might happen, to be honest, because I think at that stage, Ireland and the EU would be faced with, you know, like, like lots of choices in politics, not between good and bad, but between two bad choices, and they would have to decide which is worse. One of them would be a no deal, and one of them would be a deal that's uh, perhaps based on the British proposals this week that they uh, that they didn't like either, but could be manageable to a better end point than simply rolling the dice on a no deal and all the immediate disruption that that would entail. But they're not in that point yet because they think there is a third option at the moment. And the third option is, you know, wait and see how events at Westminster play out. Assuming that Boris Johnson will be prevented from doing a no deal at the end of this month by the Ben Act, assuming that extension then uh, is followed by an election, and then see what happens with that. So the choice faced by Dublin and by Brussels at the moment isn't between the two, two bad options to decide which is the least worse. It's the, uh, or the least bad, it's it's between three options and one of them is the wait and see option.
Paddy, we've just been discussing some of these issues with Sam McBride and Belfast. And, you know, so as we know, the two breaking points on this at the moment are the fact that the current proposals uh, don't imply a common customs area in the island of Ireland, and that's unacceptable to the EU. But the other one is this question of the involvement of uh, of the Northern Ireland Assembly in future continuations of whatever arrangements are agreed. Um, does that pose a fundamental problem? for the EU as a, as yes. a proposition? Yes, it, it does. Um, and it poses the, the, the central problem that it poses is that Ireland and the EU have been looking for guarantees that uh, any deal done on, on, uh, in, the, in the withdrawal agreement on, on the backstop or an alternative to the backstop will be a long-term guarantee that the border will not uh, return. Uh, if you say that that's conditional on the regular approval by Stormont, you, you have no guarantee at all. It's, it's like the argument about time limit, uh, which is completely unacceptable to uh, the, um, the Irish and the, uh, the Europeans. They say if you have an insurance policy uh, and a time limit on the insurance policy, then it's not worth the paper it's written on, because it's precisely at that point that you, you do actually need it. Um, you don't want it to, to run out. And is there a further, I suppose, more, I suppose, high-level constitutional issue in that the EU doesn't really want issues surrounding the, you know, the, the protection of its borders and its internal market to be decided by a, 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 what is essentially what is a regional assembly as opposed to a sovereign government? I think that's an issue that could be got round by, uh, by allowing uh, Northern Ireland consultation in the legislative process. And, and the reality is that the uh, decision by the uh, Northern Ireland Assembly would not... Uh, would not be to veto uh, any new legislation uh, being being enacted in in Brussels. It would simply be because because Brussels ha- has the right there. There's no question of anybody having a veto on it. Um, it would simply mean the collapse of of the the soft border regime. And so it would be a choice that the British people w- would be taking to to abandon uh, any guarantees on the soft border. There, there's no alternative. You can't you can't have little bits. You can't say I'm not taking little bits of of a regulatory regime, uh, and and uh, uh, and expect that the the uh, soft border would be maintained. So. Finally, Paddy, I suppose from everything you're saying here, I think I can safely presume that your view is that there will not be an agreement concluded before the before the EU summit on the 17th. There will not be a withdrawal bill presented to the House of Commons on the 19th or the 20th. We will then presume that the Ben bill becomes enacted and we let that play out in UK politics with the expectation of an extension. I think that's that's correct. But how we get that extension, I'm not really clear because there's still uh, people here are still mystified by by. uh, suggestions by uh, Boris Johnson and his acolytes that uh, they have ways around the Ben uh, the Ben legislation but I think effectively I, I don't think he can get around it I think I think an extension an ask a demand for an extension uh, will be made Patrick Smith thanks very much for joining us today so Pat, our producer Declan was laughing at me earlier when I said I was going to introduce the notion of kabuki into this. There was a kind of a brief fashion in political discourse about a year and a half, two years ago to talk about kabuki, which as you and all our listeners know is a very ritualised form of performative Japanese drama. The idea being... Indeed, that, a form of karaoke, I understand. No, not at all. That'd be more your, your style of things in Tipperary. But, um, but, maybe I'll lose my train of thought now. <laughs> 
not for the first time, says you. But there is um, essentially what it means is it's a sort of politics which is entirely performative without any real content. So that, for example, over the next two to three weeks, a whole bunch of people in Brussels, in Dublin, in London will be pretending to strive for an agreement, will go through various rituals, will talk about their openness to reaching a conclusion, all of the full knowledge that no conclusion will be reached, and then you move on to the second act of the play. Yeah, I think there's there's an element of truth in it, uh, in, in, in that. Um, I think you will see a lot of that sort of posturing. It is true, I think, though, that there's an essential truth to, to the fact, you know, to both sides' desire for a deal. I think, you know, Boris Johnson, as Theresa May was before him, has been briefed on the potentially catastrophic consequences of a no deal. And he will want to uh, avoid that. The EU wants a deal. Of course, it wants one on terms that fulfil or do not traverse its red lines. But it, it, it does want a deal. So it's, it's not purely artifice to say that, you know, both sides want a deal but are doing nothing to get there. I think that one of the big underlying facts about Boris Johnson's administration and it was true of Theresa May as well, is that he does not have a parliamentary majority. So even if a deal was possible, there is no guarantee that it would pass uh, in Westminster. And that has been uh, that has been the EU's worry from the start. They were twice burned by uh, uh, by Mrs May on that uh, on that front, and they are shy of Mr Johnson, even allowing for the fact that they trust. Mr. Johnson, an awful lot less and suspect his motives an awful lot more than they did uh, with, uh, with Mrs. May. And I think that everything that Boris Johnson has done since he became Prime Minister has been faced towards not primarily the EU, not primarily Dublin, not primarily towards getting a Brexit deal, but to use the Brexit process to get himself a majority. I think that is the next essential step And he will either be successful in that or he won't. But if he is successful, then he can do a deal, but he can also do a no deal. At the moment, I don't think he can do either. So let me ask you just one very final question for for this week on this, that from the perspective of the Irish government, obviously the, the big change in terms of the approach to this process that happened with the change from the May administration to the Johnson government is they jettisoned uh, this commitment to customs union but the re- on the island of Ireland. But the reason why they jettisoned it is because they want a harder Brexit than was, than was being proposed under Theresa May's government. They want a, uh, they want, some of them want this Singapore of the North. They certainly want less alignment um, and less, less, less tight alignment with, with the EU. And all those things are against the interests of this country, aren't they? Yes, but that is true. And it's still something that Dublin almost hasn't come to terms with, and it will have to, is the fact that the approach of Theresa May has been categorically abandoned and the commitments made by Theresa May have been abandoned by, uh, by this government. And it is true that, the, that this government wants a harder Brexit than the previous government, but it cares less about bringing Northern Ireland with it. And that's the crucial point 
for uh, for Dublin. So if Boris Johnson, and as Sam said earlier on, dragging the DUP with him, is prepared to hive off Northern Ireland, to ignore the constitutional objections that both Downing Street and the DUP had in the past, then that's a significant move for Dublin to process. But that's all Dublin on the expectations of a Boris Johnson majority government rather than, let's say, a Jeremy Corbyn SNP coalition or some other some other thing that might well, that's a route, a if, if that happens, that's a route to a softer Brexit and is much less of a problem for Ireland. But what we learned this week, which, which was important, I think, is that, uh, that a government led by Boris Johnson would, and there has been some suspicion about this previously in Dublin anyway, that a government led by Boris Johnson would care much less about uh, achieving the same Brexit for the North as for the rest of the UK. But the prospect of checks some sort of checks, not regulatory checks, but customs checks, seems to me to be closer after, uh, seems to be closer after this week. So on the one hand, on the other. Interesting. Pat, thanks for very much for coming in today. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Uh, thanks to JJ Vernon on the deck. And remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can get us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Till the next time, thanks for listening.